0: Chapter two, continuing our series here, and we're glad you're here. Uh, if you are new, welcome. We're glad you're here with us. We pray God's blessing on you as you worship with us this morning. My name is Paul Buckley, I'm uh, the lead pastor here, and get to uh, bring teaching on God's word on uh, many Sundays. And we love to be uh, in his word, it is God's word, it's living and active. God himself visits us and speaks to us as we're in His Word. So we'll be looking today at chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. The title of the message is Life in the Garden. Let me ask you a question to start. What is your purpose? What is the purpose of mankind? Why do we exist? What was God thinking in making us? Those are all important questions, and I, I think we all ask and answer those in some way, whether conscious or not. We are made in such a way that we wonder, what, what is it about? What is the purpose? What is my purpose? And we have answers one way or the other for that. Uh, maybe it's something like just to be happy. I just want to be happy somehow. Or maybe I want those whom I love to be happy. Maybe it's I wanted to do good in my life. Maybe I just want to stay out of trouble. Maybe I just want to make it through somehow and get to heaven in the end. Those are the sorts of answers that function in our lives. And we've been digging into Genesis, and Genesis answers those questions in profound ways. Ways that really should shape how we understand ourselves and our purpose and the purpose of mankind. Well, today we're going to continue to answer those questions by digging into this section of scripture, Uh, as we read it, you probably will think, maybe you'll think, well, this is kind of a repeat of stuff we already heard. This seems to be another account of creation. And what I would say is it's actually, it is, uh, but it's a zooming in on certain aspects of creation. And in particular, it's a zooming in on the purpose of mankind. Uh, So we'll look at these verses. We're going to learn about God's purpose in creating mankind, male and female. Uh, Next week I'll talk about the creation of the woman, but this week we'll we'll look at the man uh, and his purpose, uh, which of course includes the purpose of the woman. Um, We'll learn about this historic, uh, original human who was created by God for a relationship with God. Uh, Created by God for a relationship with God to represent him on the earth and to enjoy him in His goodness and glory. I'll tell you ahead of time what I think this teaches and the Bible teaches about our purpose. It's this, that mankind was formed by God and blessed by Him so that he might live in a covenant relationship with God. Mankind was formed by God, blessed by God, to live in a relationship with God, a covenant relationship. We'll talk about that. That includes faith, obedience, and blessing. That's what I believe this passage teaches us, that the Word teaches us. So let's pray and take a look at God's great Word. Lord, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that you answer these deep questions that we have in a profound way. Your Word and your truth brings life, not just intellectual answers, but answers that, that impart life and thriving and understanding and deepening. We thank you for that. We ask you to visit with us and speak to us, teach us, O oh Lord, help us to grow and live in these truths, to, to love you and to trust you, to love others more, to glorify your worthy name. Help me to teach well and, be, uh, and use me, Lord, for your purposes, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers, The name of the first is the Bishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. The Dalium and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God's word from Genesis chapter 2 verses 4 through 17. I want to go through this section of scripture and I want to learn about our purpose as we dive into each section. There are really three uh, paragraphs, subparagraphs here, uh, verses 4 to 7, verses 8 to 14, and then verses 15 to 17. I want to take time in each of those sections just to learn about what it's teaching and to learn about the Word of God. So first, verses 4 through 7, the truth that mankind is formed from dust. This section starts out with uh, the statement, these are the generations of. That's something that we're going to see throughout Genesis. Uh, every time there's a kind of a new chapter, a new volume, a new, a new account of God's dealings with mankind, it will start saying, these are the generations of. And so later on, you'll see it talk about the generations of Adam, the generations of Noah, the generations of Noah's sons, the generations of Ishmael, the generations of Isaac, and so forth. So you'll see this as a, as a section marker, really. But here, we have the generations of the heavens and the earth. It's not a person. Uh, the, the, the founding father, so to speak, here is, is not a person, but the heavens and the earth. So it's going to talk about what happens. What do the heavens and the earth generate? What, what follows from creation of the heavens and the earth? And so it speaks of what we see here and following. At this time, it says, no bush of the field, no plant, and no rain had fallen. The mist came up from the ground. And I've read, maybe you've read uh, accounts and explanations of this, and it, and it can kind of take on its own life as some sort of interesting oddity about creation, but that's not why it's here in this chapter. What's going on here, it's saying that basically mankind hadn't been made yet. And so there's no bush the field, there's no plant of the field, there's no agriculture going on. There are trees and there are plants. There's vegetation already, we know that. the previous account, but here there's there's no agriculture going on. There's no regular rain happening. It's not the normal sort of situation that the listeners, the original listeners and us, would expect. Mankind is not introduced yet. And that's going to follow. So agriculture is going to start happening once mankind starts happening. That's what what this uh, part is highlighting. There's no human dominion over creation yet. Things are just growing wildly. They are watered by springs and so forth. There's there's no cycle. There's no agriculture. And then in verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. It's interesting to to stop and, and pay attention to what it says there. It says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. So it mentions the ground. It mentions dust. And it mentions the man. The man actually, literally, is Mr. Ground. That's what the name means. Adam. Mr. Ground. So the Lord God formed Mr. Ground of dust from the ground. There's a repetition here, right? Going on. It's an emphasis. It's teaching us something about mankind. Something about our ourselves, that, that God makes mankind from the stuff of the ground, the earth. We're we're like a clay vessel shaped by the potter. He grabs clay, he grabs dirt, he grabs dust, and he makes a human. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because previously you had heard in chapter one about us being made in the image of God, right? So we are we are divine reflections. That's pretty high description of Divine reflections. I don't think there's a a, a more honorific title for humankind than to say that we are divine reflections. But here, what are we? Dirt. Dust. Interesting. And it's not uh, by accident that this is here in Scripture. This is teaching us more about who we are And and we certainly need to understand ourselves as divine reflections. That's an important part of our identity as humans, but we're also dirt. And God breathes his life into the dirt, into the dust, into the ground, into the clay, so to speak, and makes life. God is actually very much involved in this process, it's 1st and the picture is like a potter taking the clay and, and making mankind, forming mankind out of dirt, breathing. He himself breathes into the nostrils of man and, and makes him a living being. And when it says that he breathes, it's it's not the same word that is used for breathing the life of the animals. The animals have the breath of God as well, but it's a different word here. It's as if the author is wanting us to, to recognize that this is not the same sort of breathing that's going on. It's very personal, but but we have to... Uh, Make sure we don't miss the point that we are of dirt. And without the Lord God breathing into us, that's essentially all we are is dirt. And so this is a, a pole of human identity, right? On one end is divine reflections, on the other end is dirt. Apart from the breath of God, we're just dirt. And I would submit to you, if you can keep both those in mind, you'll have a healthy understanding of yourself and others. We are divine reflections. Indeed, there's nothing more glorious than to reflect God himself in his goodness and glory. But we're also just dirt that God sets in motion. Who are we? Nothing, in and of ourselves, just dirt. I think we can hold both of those. That will help. There are some of us who, who are very aware that we're divine reflections and may feel that everyone else needs to know that we're divine reflections. Maybe we need to recognize we're dirt as well. And then there are some of us who are very aware that we're dirt. We feel that we're dirt. Maybe we need to know that by God's grace, we are divine reflections. That's what we're made for. Both those truths need to function. So this is here for us, for our benefit in understanding ourselves. Notice something else here, that there's a change in the title of God. So previously in chapter 1, it just uses God. The simple word Elohim, uh, God, but the plural, the divine plural. Uh, but it's just the word God. That's all it means. And Now we have the Lord God. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in my Bible. Some of us maybe have an older translation It says Jehovah God. And that capital, capitalized L-O-R-D is the translation uh, following the pattern of how the New Testament translates the divine covenantal name of God, Yahweh. And so literally in the, in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh Elohim. And so there's a switch here. And some people have said, well, you know, it must be a different author to kind of kicked in this next chapter. And I don't think so. What's going on here is now you have the covenantal God working hands-on with humanity. And this chapter is about his relationship with humanity. It's about knowing humanity, humanity knowing him, and having this covenantal relationship. So the switch in the name is intentional to highlight the reality that that God is just not the general creator of mankind, who who sets everything in motion, but he calls us to relationship. He calls us to this covenantal relationship. Relationship. I'm going to talk about that as we go through this. So let me explain what a covenant is. God always relates to mankind through covenant. Covenant is simply just a, a formalized relationship. It's, it's a way to, to set the parameters of a relationship. To say this is who I am, this is who you are, this is how we relate. It usually includes promises, duties that we perform for each other. Obligations we have to each other. And it's intended for mutual benefit. That's what a covenant is. It's really just a a formalized relationship, and and God always relates to mankind this way. I think we relate to one another in some sort of uh, understood covenants, of course. One of the most uh, helpful, uh, understandable ones is the covenant of marriage, biblical covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, where you make these promises to one another, and it's for your mutual good. That's what a covenant is. And so when God says in Scripture, the Lord God took the man and formed him from the dirt, it's it's talking about the the nature of God, that He's a covenant-making, a covenant-keeping God. And He didn't make mankind to to be on their own. He made mankind for a relationship, a covenantal relationship with Him in His role. That's what's happening here. That's what this section teaches us. God makes us perfect personally from dirt breathes life into us so that he can have a relationship with us in covenant we are handmade by god i have uh, we have in our house our coffee mug cabinet i don't know if you have a, a coffee mug cabinet but we do and we have probably too many coffee mugs in there um we have two different types of coffee mugs in our cabinet. We have all of them are nice mugs. We don't keep non-nice mugs, I guess, but they're all nice. There's one type that are the, the perfectly cylindrical mugs with the shiny glaze on them. And and you know they can just be plain color or they might actually the special ones you send away for, like they say, Nana, that's Peg's name, grandmother in Italian, uh, or Pastor Paul or or whatever, King of Grace Church, right? Maybe you have one of those attractive mugs. Uh, We have those sorts of mugs. They're they're nice. We use those mugs. But then we have another type of mug in the cabinet. They're not really cylindrical. They're not perfectly formed. They don't have the shiny glaze on them. Uh, They're a little bit asymmetric. They're a little bit different. The colors are different. The feel is different. They're heavier. Uh, They might have an emblem, but it, it isn't a polished, perfect emblem. It's been set in there somehow. But those mugs are the most precious ones. We maybe have two or three like that. They're handmade mugs. They're made by a ceramist, uh, usually someone we know. And they're precious because they're handmade mugs. They're, they're not mugs that roll off a factory line. They're, they're mugs that, that come out of someone's hands, crafting them. And that's the, the thought here in understanding mankind. We are not factory-made mugs. We are crafted by God himself out of dirt, breathing life, creating something that he can relate to, that we can relate with him, that we can have a covenantal relationship with God. We cannot understand mankind properly apart from that truth. And so here, right in the beginning of the Bible, we understand who we are, what our purpose is, why we're made. We're made by God and for God. Do you understand yourself that way? Or are you just a number among many numbers in the world? Biblically, you are not just a number. You are made by God. You are handcrafted by God for a covenantal relationship with Him. Well, it continues on in verses eight and following. God forms the man, and He uh, forms the man of the ground. He plants a garden in Eden. The first agriculture going on here really is God. God plants a garden. Now, this is different than than the other vegetation that's going on. This is a garden. It's planted in the east. This is from the vantage point of the people of God coming out of Egypt, so it's to the east of them, in the Sinai, where they are. It's in the east. And he puts the man in this garden. God puts the man, he places the man in the garden. He puts him somewhere where he wants him to be. That lines up with his purpose for mankind. And in this garden, he makes every sort of tree that is pleasant and useful for mankind. It's full of of the sorts of trees that you enjoy, the sorts of trees that produce the fruit that you enjoy to eat. That's what's going on here in this garden. It's catered for the man. It's a garden. And there are two important trees really at the center of it all. We'll talk about those. There's a river that flows out of this amazing garden. So the garden is a source of a river. That flows out of the garden, and then that river actually splits into four rivers that, that pretty much from what we understand reading it, they, they are meant to go, to, they do go to the four corners of the world. So the river that flows out of, the, out of Eden waters the whole earth. This is at the center, really, of, of the earth, in, in, in a sense, spiritually, certainly. It's a special garden. Now, it's important for us to understand garden because we hear garden, we think certain things. We think, you know, like, tomatoes, and flowers, and so forth. We live in a world where everyone can make a garden just about anywhere We're, we're in, the, in this part of the, of the Western Hemisphere. Uh, it's very, particularly the East Coast, is very fertile. You can grow a garden anywhere. Peg and I, uh, when we, we lived in the inner city some years ago, we had a garden where we grew prize pumpkins. And I actually came in second place in a contest. Uh, the guy who won was a farmer. So I grew a prize pumpkin on, in Roxbury, Massachusetts. You can grow gardens anywhere. And so we read this, and we think a regular garden. But, but this was written, this happened in a, a time when people didn't grow gardens like we did. The only people who grew gardens were kings. It was an arid place, and you couldn't afford to, to grow a garden, uh, this sort of garden. And so this is a royal garden. I think we have a picture. Uh, this is kind of like the, the hanging gardens of Babylon, Babylon. Um, got a picture to show. There you go. That's the idea of the garden here. That's a picture of what they think the hanging gardens of Babylon. One of the ancient wonders of the world, uh, it, though it's all based on accounts, second, third-hand accounts, but that in Babylon there are these amazing gardens. This is the idea of this garden. This is not just your vegetable garden in your backyard sort of garden. This is a royal garden. Garden. This is a a glorious garden full of of wonderful trees and and a river that flows out of it. And, And it's a place for kings to walk. That's the implication here. And priests as well. We'll get into that. There are two trees, important trees in the garden. They represent and embody two important ideas life itself and the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life is an important idea throughout Scripture. Uh, it's a, both a metaphor and a reality for the fullness of life that God brings. That's what it's speaking of. This tree of life brings, brings life. Now, as we hear this, two trees, we might think, well, of course, this is a fable and this is a metaphor. This is not reality. And, and I would say, no, actually, this is a reality. It's not a fable. This is true. These are not things that just represent stuff. They are the actual thing. They, they represent and they embody the reality." That sounds fantastical. Things that represent and embody something. There are physical things that embody a spiritual reality. Have you ever heard of that sort of thing ever happening? There are two things that the church celebrates that do exactly that, right? Physical things that represent and embody the reality. We call them sacraments. Baptism and communion. Physical Physically, you go into the water and you come out. Uh, but it, it represents your life in Christ. But it isn't just uh, an exercise, a, a nice little celebration. It's an actual participation in Christ. Communion clearly is that. It's called a, a participation in Christ. We take the bread, we take the juice. They're physical things. They represent the body and blood of Christ, but they're more than just a representation, they're a participation in the very body and blood of Christ. We belong to Christ in that sort of intimate way. It's an experience of that. That's, that's what sacraments are. That's what's going on in the garden. These are, in a sense, sacramental trees that, that represent and embody these ideas of, of life, the life that God brings. And also the, the, the call to mankind to, to walk in the knowledge, the true knowledge of good and evil. They are there in the garden because they have everything to do with relating to God, with humanity relating to God. They are physical things that represent and embody a, a deeper reality, a spiritual reality, and more. So this is what the garden looks like. And we see it elsewhere in Scripture, actually. The garden starts here in the beginning of the Bible, chapter 2 of Genesis, and the theme runs throughout Scripture. We'll, we'll learn more about that as we go through our series, but just a couple references, you've probably heard me share this before, in scripture. The book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet who was calling God's people to return to God. Uh, And and it was a terrible time. They had wandered very far. They were going into exile. And so the prophets uh, not only appealed to God's people to return, but they promised God's blessing for the future. And in that context, Ezekiel has a vision of the future temple. Listen to how it's described in chapter 47. Then he brought me Back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Verse 3, going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, and then led me through the water. It was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in it, a river that could not be passed through. Verse 12, and on the banks on both sides of the river there were There will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. But in the middle of your Bible, a parallel account. And then fast forward to the end. Revelation chapter 22, giving a fuller picture of this same scene in Ezekiel and the same scene we we're hearing about in chapter 2 of Genesis. The Apostle John sees the new Jerusalem and says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, right as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. It's the same sort of wording. Revelation 22. Why do I share this with you? <clears throat> because I want you to know that this is a storyline that starts here in chapter 2 and goes all the way to the end. I also want you to know that, that this is a truth about where our real home is. God formed the man and he put him in the garden. Now we're going to learn more about the story as we get to chapter 3 and following. The man gets put out of the garden. It's a terrible tragedy. But the storyline in the Bible is God restoring mankind to his true home. To be in this place of blessing from God and in this relationship, this covenantal relationship with God, to enjoy God, to worship him, to love him, to, to image him in his creation. To do that in the garden, whether the garden is the Chapter 2 of Genesis, or the ultimate garden, of course, is the the destination. The eternal garden of Eden in the new creation. He's not placed us outside the garden. God did not put mankind in an untamed wilderness to somehow scrap his way and, and form some sort of existence in the wilderness. He's not placed outside the blessings and presence of God. He's put in the garden to walk with God in covenantal relationship, to know God, to depend on God, to live dependent on God's blessings, and to stay in fellowship with God through his covenantal relationship. That's home. That's your true home. You are meant for the home that the garden is. And there's no home without that. In a couple months, it'll be spring, believe it or not. And with spring will come uh, birds nesting. And I don't know if you've ever uh, found a, a bird, a baby bird, a nestling outside of its nest. Um, if you find a fledgling outside its nest, you're supposed to leave alone, actually, because it's learning to survive on its own with its parents' help. But a nestling is that bird without the feathers. I don't know if you've ever found one. And if you've ever seen one of those, what were your thoughts? oh no, it's in trouble. And actually, I, I looked this up to make sure I was saying this right. I'm not, I'm not an expert on birds, but, but it's actually appropriate to pick them up and put them back in the nest. It doesn't bother the, the parents like we all were told. Um, we never, none of us think, like, well, that's, that's cool. That chick's going to be okay. We think, this is terrible. We've got to put it back in its nest. It's meant to be in the nest. That, that is its home. Similarly with us. We're meant to be in the nest of the garden. We're meant to be in relationship with God, dependent on Him, living in His blessings and covenantal relationship with Him. We're meant for such a home and we will never be at home until we're home there. Augustine said it this way, you have formed us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Where is your home? Your true home. Finally, verses 15 through 17. We're made for a covenant with God. We're made to live in a relationship with God. So verse 15 uh, repeats actually what's said in verse 8. It says God put the man in the garden. It already said that, so why is it saying it again? Well, repetition in the Bible is usually for emphasis and clarity. And that's what's going on here in verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. It already said that. But now it says to work it and keep it. And so now it's going to get into more detail of what it means to be put in the garden. What, what is going on? What Why are you in this home? What is your purpose in the home? What's the goal here? Well, he's to work it and keep it. And certainly that includes gardening, the actual cultivation and agricultural work. That's that's part of it. But it isn't just that. So so this isn't, you know, Adam is the first gardener, and this is his purpose, and therefore all of us need to be gardeners to find our true purpose. That's not what's going on here. Certainly he did some gardening. He was to actually probably take care of, of agriculturally take care of the garden, but but it's more than that. There's more going on. The words that are used for work and keep are 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 words that are also used for what the the people of God, particularly what the priests were called to do in the temple. The word work means to serve as well. And serving is the word used for what the priests did in their job in taking care of the temple. Now the parallels between the temple and the tabernacle, I've already shown, and and we're going to see even more as we get into chapter 3, are very clear. So this isn't just trying to like make things you know, work together in some clever way. It's understanding and interpreting these words as, as the context dictates and, and as the use of the words dictates. So service, the, the word for work, means service. It means temple service. And so Adam's job in this garden is actually to, to do to take care of this temple. To keep it functioning. This is what the priests were to do. They were to work the temple to maintain it as a beautiful and useful place for the worship of God by God's people. That's what God is saying to Adam. Your job is to work here in this garden to maintain it and keep it as a beautiful and functional place of worship of God, of the enjoyment of God. But then it says He is to keep it as well. And if we fast forward to chapter 3... We'll learn a little more about this word. Because in chapter 3, things fall apart. Adam gets driven from the garden. And now there's someone else keeping the garden. Verse 24, he drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. And a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That's the same word. Keep to guard. It's the same exact word. So later on, it's going to be a flaming sword with the cherubim that guards the tree of life, that guards the temple, that keeps people from going in because they've been put out. That's, we'll get to that later. But Adam originally was called to be that one that guarded that temple, that, that had the job of making sure that, that that temple remained functioning according to its purpose and its purity. He was to keep it and guard it from any sort of distortion of its purpose and its purity. It was to remain a place of relationship with God and purity in its devotion to God. Now, the use of that word to keep here hints at something going on. There's something lurking, right? There's the possibility of misuse. There's the possibility of misusing this temple. And Adam's job is to ensure that that doesn't happen. And So we're starting to get a hint that things are, are not necessarily as peaceful as we would expect. There is something going on behind the scenes. We need to understand that mankind was created for all this relationship in the context of a real enemy. There's already been a fall of the angels that's gone on. And there's already a Satan that's, that's lurking there somehow we don't know exactly when it happened and adam is called to be the protector of that temple to guard it for its purpose to be a place of the enjoyment and worship of god that's part of his call there and then there are particular aspects to this that are that are brought out in verses 16 and 17 it, there's an explanation, in a sense, of part of how he's supposed to do this. It says in verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Verse 16, God says, You may surely eat, it says in my translation. Uh, in the original language, it's a, it's, a du- it's a doubling of the word eat. So God is saying, Eat, eat, manja, manja, enjoy the garden, Adam. That's what he's saying. But, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. One thing I ask you not to do. You get to eat all that you want. Please eat up and enjoy. Don't do this one thing. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, it seems pretty simple. It's actually a really good setup for Adam. He can eat all the stuff he wants. He gets to enjoy a relationship with God. There's just one thing for him not to do. But actually, there's another way to look at it. It's challenging in some ways because who is Adam? He's the divine representative of God. He's the representative of the divine God, I should say. He's, he's the image of God. He's a king, he's a chief priest. He is to rule over the world and have dominion. God told him that, right? To, to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. He's in charge of these things. He's supposed to be in charge here. And, and there's an aspect to it that you can think, well, what's going on? Why is God saying, you know, you're in charge, but I actually have something you, I don't want you to do. It, it's somewhat contrary to, to this charge. And you might say, well, why doesn't God just leave mankind alone and let him do his job? Be, you know, be his own person and, and be the captain of his own destiny and, and fulfill the, the, the mandate that he was given. Go do it. God requires him to not do one thing. Interesting. Now, backing up, I think we get some understanding of why this is here. Because we've learned that mankind is not just made as the image of God. He's formed by God himself out of dirt for a covenantal relationship with God. And so this chapter has emphasized the dependency of mankind on God. And so we would be mistaken to understand our identity as humans in that way, that, that, that we are independent from God. No, we are entirely dependent on God. And so this command to not eat is, is making Adam basically have to walk out that reality, that look God, you're the one who gets to make the shots here. You make the call on what is right and wrong, and I follow you. Yes, you've given me this commission to do all this, but I'm totally dependent on you. That's what this command is emphasizing. It is a covenantal relationship, by the way, with Adam. Saying, Adam, i got all this blessing for you. i got all this purpose for you. But this is the one thing I'm requiring of you specifically. Don't eat of that. You will show your dependency on me and your right relationship with me by, by obeying me here. And I am for you. I am with you. I want this covenantal relationship. You are precious to me. I made you for this relationship. But there's a certain way that we operate in this covenant. This is the first covenant. First covenant with mankind. And he's not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Isn't that interesting? What does that mean? There are different theories about what the tree of knowledge of good and evil is. um, What it's about. What is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What is it really about? And here's what I think it's really about. It's really about the knowledge of good and evil. It's about the knowledge of good and evil. But biblically, what is knowledge? Knowledge is more than intellectual understanding. So this isn't that Adam didn't have any, had no clue of what good and evil was. That's not what that means. Adam is an intelligent being made in the image of God. He would have understood a lot of things because of that. He had an intelligence. He had an ability to acquire information. He knew right and wrong just by virtue of who he was and his context and creation, like we all do. That's not what this is talking about. It isn't that he was innocent in that sense, being gullible and not knowing what good and evil is. It's something more. It's actually not the intellectual understanding of good and evil. It's the relational aspect of good and evil. In in other words, it's how do you relate to good and evil? How do I relate? How do I judge? How do I operate with good and evil? That's what this tree is about. Not the knowledge, the mere intellectual knowledge of good and evil. And so this tree is, is, a, is a place to acquire good and evil, but it, it, it's the test itself is an opportunity for him to exercise true knowledge of good and evil. It's interesting that the mix here, almost the irony of, of this tree, because the tree is, is this, in a sense, the supplier. That's what's going to happen. is The devil's going to say, you can know good and evil. But how... You relate to the tree actually determines your supply of that true knowledge of good and evil. And this is the story of the Bible, by the way. You cannot know good and evil truly without being dependent on the Lord entirely. He alone, relationship with him, being in relationship with him alone allows us to rightly relate to good and evil. And apart from that, we we take good and evil and we flip them upside down. And so the, the irony of all this is that Adam and Eve think they can merely eat the fruit on their own and acquire the knowledge of good and evil, but they actually acquire the opposite. They twist evil for good and good for evil. And so the knowledge of good and evil necessitates a covenantal relationship of dependency on God. We, we must depend on him to rightly understand good and evil, to navigate it. Otherwise we get it upside down. So there's, this is all going on in this experience that Adam is called to... To depend on God. To live in covenantal relationship with God. And to overcome the evil one. How? By being smart and perceptive himself. Or by saying. God said. To not do this. And to do this. The wisest man. In the world. The only faithful one. When he was confronted with the same temptation. That Adam and Eve are going to face. What was his reply? Let me tell you all the genius about why we should do this or do that. No, he said sen- he said simply this. It is written. My father gets to determine what is true and untrue. He determines what is good and evil. And so my knowledge of good and evil comes in relationship with him, relating to him rightly, trusting him for what he says, not trusting my son. The tragedy of the fall is mankind tries to find its identity apart from God on their own. And everything gets twisted. Good and evil get turned upside down. It's a horrific irony. But the call here to Adam, the call here to mankind, is to relate to God, the one who formed us. In this covenantal relationship of dependency, of faith and obedience and living in blessing. This is God's design. This is God's call for Adam. This is God's call for all mankind. Now we know the rest of the story here that Adam will fail in his leadership, along with Eve, to fall through on this covenant. He will break this covenant, this simple covenant He will determine to know things on his own. And the reality is that every human being has followed through on the same failure. We naturally are broken. We naturally want to figure life out on our own. We want to establish our identity apart from God. We want to determine good and evil ourselves outside of relationship with God. We've all failed and we all are subject to the promise of death, spiritual death and separation from God. And yet the the story of the Bible is God's pursuit of rebellious mankind. And there's a second Adam who comes later. His name is Jesus. He alone is the covenant keeper. He alone is faithful to fulfill that original covenant in his dependence on the Lord. To the point of death on the cross. He chooses to trust and obey his father. Even though it will cost him An infinite price. And he goes to the cross. To obey his father. To fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill this covenant. And every covenant. To be the covenant itself. The only faithful one. To bear our sins on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body. On the tree. Another tree. That we might die to sin. And live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus is faithful, goes to the cross, another tree, is crucified in our place. But he is the faithful covenant keeper, the only one. And in his amazing grace, God's amazing grace, he offers us reconciliation in Christ, the only faithful covenant keeper. Through simple faith, through simply turning away From self-determination and sin, trusting in Jesus, the only faithful one who obeys, goes to the cross in our place, rises again. Through faith in him, we are forgiven and we are brought into covenant with God in Christ. He himself is our covenant. He is the one who restores us to the garden. The cross itself becomes a tree of life. And a way to live in that garden. From the moment you put your faith in Christ, you are in the garden. You are in that place. You belong to the Lord. You are in covenant with Him. Your sins are forgiven. He's there with you, He's there to bring blessing even through your sufferings. And He will lead us home to our final and perfect home in His new creation. This is our purpose is our purpose from Genesis chapter 2. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for how you made us and what you made us for. We thank you for our purpose in you. We thank you for your rescue, Jesus. We have failed to follow through on the purpose you created for us. Yet, Jesus, you have been faithful. You are the covenant keeper. And we look to you and we thank you. We live because of you. Thank you for the life you bring, Lord Jesus. And all your grace. Fill our hearts with fresh faith and joy. And lead us in your ways, we pray. In Christ's name.